Here's another listener. Essay. Essay. This is Infants on Thrones. Listener Essay. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is the back half of our May 2018 Listener Essay Contest. Five more essays for you each day this week, ending with today's essay, which is number 10 in our contest, and is titled, An Open Letter to Mormonism, and written by Christian. Now, I want to quickly say a special thank you to all of you who have submitted essays this past week and sent emails about the songwriting contest. Now, there will be a songwriting contest in July and another listener essay contest in August to fit in the ones that were recently submitted and just won't fit into this current contest. But no worries. We'll just do another listener essay contest and we'll keep doing them as long as you listeners have things that you want to say. So please keep sending in your submissions. They're great. But you know what else would be great? Not very many of you have been going to the website to fill out the little voting surveys for each of these listener essays, and I'd like to see more of those. And so would Jesus. And I'm sure so would our authors. They'd like to get more feedback on the essays that they wrote and recorded and submitted for this contest. So please remember to go to the website, infantsonthrones.com, find the post for today's essay, and spend a couple of minutes casting your vote and providing some feedback. It's easier than home teaching, visiting teaching, ministering, or whatever the hell they're calling it now. So please give feedback, because if you don't, you're lame. And that's exactly what the devil wants you to be. And why would anyone want to make the devil happy? He's bad. He's bad. The devil is bad. Do you want to be bad too? Or do you want to be good? Like today's author, Christian, who wrote An Open Letter to Mormonism. So take it away, Christian. And stop making the devil be happy, Christians. An Open Letter to Mormonism, April 3rd, 2018. When I was a young missionary in Brazil, we had a guest speaker join us for a zone conference. I believe he was an Area Authority 70, and unfortunately his name escapes me now. However, he taught us a valuable lesson. He told us that, at times, it may be necessary for us to give feedback or constructive criticism. Sometimes, whoever is receiving that criticism could become defensive. As a tool to combat that outcome, he taught us the hot dog or the hamburger method of providing feedback or criticism, which would hopefully lessen the chance that the receiver would become defensive, yielding our message ineffective. To illustrate in simple terms, a hot dog is a big piece of meat surrounded by two pieces of soft and fluffy bread. In his allegory, the meat represented the criticism or feedback, and the two buns that surround it represent genuine, positive, uplifting affirmation. I've found that this methodology is quite sound, and my hope is to implement this strategy in addressing some of the observations regarding the church that I've had bouncing around my head for the past few years. So, now for the first layer of the bun. I was born in the church and raised in Orem, Utah. I had a wonderful but tumultuous childhood. I'm the oldest of five children. 
Both of my parents were active, faithful, believing members of the church and raised their kids fully active. My parents subsequently divorced when I was 13 years old and there's more to this I'll come back to, but the church took an ever more important role in my life at that time. It gave me meaning. It gave me purpose. It provided me with a solid, proven framework to live an honorable, righteous life. I met all the rite of passage milestones within Mormonism as a young man. Advancing in the Aaronic Priesthood, serving in the Quorum Presidencies, became an Eagle Scout, etc. My life was and has been greatly enriched due to my participation in this church. My father and stepmother sang in the Tabernacle Choir, and as I grew older, I loved going to the Tabernacle to hear them sing. When the time came, I served a mission to Sao Paulo, Brazil. My mission was a fantastic experience that brought me closer to the Savior and established what I thought would be a solid foundation of faith that would provide a bedrock of spiritual experiences for me to build upon throughout my life. I served as district leader, zone leader, and assistant to my mission president. I returned home, began my studies, and eventually got married to a faithful, beautiful woman in the Salt Lake Temple. During my adult life, I served as Sunday School President, First Counselor in the Young Men's Presidency, and Ward Mission Leader. After I graduated with my master's degree, I became a CPA and began working for an international accounting firm in Las Vegas. Up to this point, I had lived what I considered to be a successful Mormon life. My life was rich and full because of my participation in Mormonism. I don't have adequate words to express how much I loved the gospel and how dedicated I was to it. I still don't have words to adequately convey the gratitude that I feel to have been a member of this church. It has blessed my life immeasurably. However, as I look back throughout my life, there were little things here and there that, for lack of a better word, bothered me. Inconsistencies, conundrums, things that didn't quite add up. I pushed those things aside and led with faith and didn't give much credence to any thought that could be construed or interpreted as doubt. When my first child was born, in the summer of 2014, everything began to change for me. As I'm sure anyone with a child can relate to, it's a life-changing experience. It caused a paradigm shift of epic proportions for me, and I began to view the world as a father of a child. For reasons I still don't fully understand, this shift in my worldview caused me to view the church differently. I've always considered myself to be intellectual and a critical thinker, and those attributes had served me well as a member of the church. However, the little things that bothered me about the church began to grow and grow and grow. I'll explain to the best of my ability herein, but I watched my own faith dissolve before my eyes. I lost the ability to simply believe, as I once used to. Now, in April of 2018, I have been inactive for the better part of two years. Despite my desires of continued involvement in the church, I find myself in an apparent conundrum wherein my worldview no longer seems to be compatible with Mormonism. For the remainder of my letter, I want to simply lay out some of the reasons why, in my view, I'm currently unable to participate in full activity in the church. This is going to be the meat of my hot dog. 
the meat in this hot dog is a giant, foot-long German bratwurst with sauerkraut and spicy mustard. It's a doozy. I'll end my letter with one more bun, which is to proclaim my hope for a path forward for me and the church. I've always been, or tried to be, a scholar of the gospel. I read the Book of Mormon dozens of times before my mission. I especially loved the prophet Joseph Smith and read his teachings over and over. I loved, and still love, church history and the rich, faithful heritage of the church. I loved the complexity of the doctrine and the completeness with which it could answer life's difficult questions. However, looking back, I can identify the cracks in the foundation of my faith that ultimately led to me losing my ability to believe. They are as follows. 1. God and his recorded interactions with his children. 2. The events of the Restoration, or church history. And 3. The administration of the modern-day church. For further context, and if it might be helpful, I'll briefly illustrate a few of the highlights from each of these areas. In almost every case, the problems arise, in my view, due to a literal, non-figurative, non-symbolic interpretation and implementation of scripture, doctrine, and dogma. Part 1. God and his recorded interactions with his children. I find it hard to reconcile the narrative that God is our loving Heavenly Father and he has a plan for all of us with my lived experience and my observation of the world. For example, roughly every 10.2 seconds a child starves to death in this world. That's not a quick, painless way to die. Almost certainly, the family of this child and the child herself is crying out to God to save her from her miserable existence. In every case, God simply does nothing. As a missionary in Brazil, I observed the truly depraved, crippling poverty in which some people lived. And it caused me to realize that my worldview was incomplete, infantile, and ignorant of the reality of most human existence. I told myself that the restored gospel was the cure for this sick world and that it was my duty to bring it to humanity. However, I struggled with the conundrum that, by my calculation, only 0.2% of the world's population was currently a member of the church. Given the repeated apostasy and restoration cycles recorded in scripture and the relatively high inactivity rates in the church, it seemed to me as though the vast majority of Earth's population, 99.98% perhaps, had lived their life and died without ever having had knowledge of the gospel or at least benefited from full participation in such. Moreover, God had done close to nothing to tell them about it, and neither did he extend his hand to alleviate their human suffering in any meaningful way. To further complicate things, in the instances where he is recorded speaking with his prophets, he is ambiguous, reveals clearly trivial information, or worse, he reveals concepts laden with racism, violence, and by all accounts, immorality. See virtually the entire Old Testament as an example. Luckily, Jesus came. Jesus taught kindness and compassion. He brought hope. 
There are very few things that Jesus taught that, if implemented, would make the world a worse place. I have my doubts as to the supernatural claims associated with Jesus, being the literal Son of God, walking on water, suffering the sins of all of humanity, rising from the dead, etc. But I can't deny that the Christ of faith, not the historical literal figure of Christ, has changed my life. More on this later. For me, the problem-solving principle of Oakham's razor has been increasingly useful in, among other things, effectively debunking the concept of a single God who has been interacting with humanity since the beginning of time. Oakham's razor states that given the choice between two scenarios, the one with the least amount of assumptions is usually correct. As such, I've concluded that the different iterations of God as conceptualized by different civilizations in different places around the earth for the past several thousands of years have originated in the human mind and not actually from any divine personage interacting with them. Modern Christianity, Mormonism included, have tried to go back farther than Jesus to the God of Abraham and connect him to Jesus, thus perhaps bringing added validity to the narrative. However, an honest analysis of the Old Testament and the New Testament shows an illustration of vastly different ideas, and many faithful adherents have to deal with the cognitive dissonance of worshipping the same God, who in one instance commands the slaughter of Canaanite men, women, children, and even their animals for some reason, but then a few centuries later, when appearing in the flesh, tells you to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. God, as defined in Mormonism, has grown much too narrow for me. We literally have a name for God, Elohim, and he is an exalted man who is now as we may become, and was once as we are now, who has a body of flesh and bones, who is literally the father of our spirits, who dwells on a planet next to a star named Kolob. Can we at least appreciate how intensely specific that is? I used to scoff at statements such as, God is love, and disregard them as well-intentioned false doctrine. However, now that's about the only thing I can point to that actually makes sense. As Mormons, how many conundrums are we faced with when trying to reconcile all of recorded scriptural history and create a cohesive narrative? For me, the narrative falls apart. I'll never forget my surprise, the first time I truly considered that maybe there was no omnipotent, omniscient, anthropomorphic God. I was relieved. I was glad to be able to say, oh yeah, there's not really anybody just watching in terror as most of his children suffer and die. I was overjoyed to be able to say, for the first time in my life, I don't know if God even exists. Now, I can say with certain conviction that if there is a God, and he is the God of Abraham as recorded in most of scripture, I don't feel he is worthy of my adoration. God, as often portrayed in holy texts, does not measure up with my innate human morality. Now, I could find some potential value in God, and potentially even in the belief of God, but under totally different assumptions. Of course, one has to consider the different iterations of God that have existed throughout humankind's existence. 
It's interesting to consider that a modern-day Christian is atheistic towards the vast majority of deities worshipped throughout our species' existence. From Zeus to Hanuman to Isis to Amaterasu, human beings have been particularly good for a long time at coming up with gods to worship. But, to illustrate, let me explain my stance on the specific iteration of God unique to my faith tradition, the God of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. I view the Old Testament as a collection of old stories, some of which contain beautiful and useful morals and lessons, and are mostly useful as allegories or parables. I don't take any of it as literal or historical. I believe it should also be widely recognized that vast amounts of the Old Testament are laden with 12th century barbarism, racism, misogyny, immorality, and nonsensical utterances that are better off discarded. The New Testament contains a narrative of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Christ of faith. I think that Christ indeed existed, but I have a hard time believing any of the supernatural claims associated with his existence. I view the New Testament as a myth, and the character of Christ is the hero. The story of Christ is transformative and truly has changed my life. It has caused me to become a kinder, more compassionate human being. In my view, that is not because of the historical authenticity of the events described in the New Testament, but because of the power of storytelling in our human evolution. Again, I do not take the New Testament or the events described therein to be a factual, literal history. Likewise, the Book of Mormon is viewed as scripture similar to the Bible, and it is understood to be the same God and the same Jesus Christ from the Bible that is interacting with a different people in a different place. I don't necessarily believe that the Book of Mormon itself offers any additional information about God or Jesus Christ than described in the Bible. Or at least I can say that their character is consistent. I also consider the Book of Mormon to not be actual or factual literal history. In Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, it is hypothesized that man's success is due to its ability to create and sustain grand collaborative myths that unite us in a common cause. Harari further hypothesizes that the development of our language gave us a massive, exponential survival advantage. It was because we could talk about things that were not real. As far as we know, only sapiens can talk about entire kinds of entities that they have never seen, touched, or smelled. Legends, myths, gods, and religions appeared for the first time with the cognitive revolution. Many animal and human species could previously say, careful, a lion. But thanks to the cognitive revolution, Homo sapiens acquired the ability to say, the lion is the guardian spirit of our tribe. This ability to speak about fictions is the most unique feature of Sapien's language. You could never convince a monkey to give you a banana by promising him limitless bananas after death in monkey heaven. That being said, I could honestly say that I have faith in God if I were allowed to completely redefine what faith and God mean. For me, expressing a faith in God would be synonymous with saying, 
I have hope in something more than this current, present way of life. Something better. Something grander. I cannot honestly proclaim that I have spiritual knowledge acquired through diligent prayer, study, etc. All of that has fallen away, and I'm left to believe that my previous convictions were the product of my psychology, among other things. Unfortunately, my statement of a belief in God does not refer any longer to a belief in a supernatural being named Elohim who lives on a planet nearest the star Kolob. However, that being said, the God of Mormonism is the God who weeps. If there is, in fact, an anthropomorphic God, I hope he's the one described in Moses chapter 7. Enoch sees God weeping and asks him why he is weeping. God responds, quote, The Lord said unto Enoch, Behold these thy brethren, they are the workmanship of mine own hands, and I gave unto them their knowledge in the day I created them. And in the Garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency. And unto thy brethren have I said, and also given commandment, that they should love one another, and that they should choose me, their father. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. End quote. That's a beautiful sentiment and a beautiful story. That paints a picture of a kind, loving, father-figure God. Unfortunately for me, he has also been very narrowly and specifically defined. I think you can appreciate, at least, that my evolving view of God is difficult to be considered compatible with Mormon doctrine. However, if it can be enough for me to simply say that my faith in God consists of two things. One, I fully confess I don't know if God exists. And two, if he does, I hope he's the kind, loving Father in Heaven that I believed in as a Mormon. Or actually, maybe even a little better than that. Part 2. The Events of the Restoration, or Church History. As part of this faith journey, I have been led to ask myself, what is truth? I have encountered a unique group of people on the internet who, like myself, have experienced a shift in their worldview and a transition away from their literal faith. These people have nuanced views, and for them everything becomes symbolic. As such, people like myself who previously held very literalistic interpretations of doctrine, scripture, etc., are faced with the challenge of turning once literal events into figurative, symbolic events. As a practical example, I like to use the following. D-Day was June 6th, 1944. This is a historically precise statement that uses a single word or words to convey specific occurrences on specific dates and in a specific place. As such, the descriptor D-Day is a placeholder for the amphibious, airborne, and naval landing of 24,000 American, British, and Canadian troops, June 6, 1944. Allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of France at 6.30 in the morning on a target 50-mile stretch of the Normandy coast that was divided into five sectors, Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juneau, and Sword. 
As such, the historical term D-Day immediately infers a specific time, place, and specific events. Religious truth claims, on the other hand, have historically been untestable. The God of the Gaps theorem proposes that in the gaps of our understanding is where God is found. Mormonism, however, has repeatedly tied and, in my view, inseparably connected religious truth claims with historical truth claims that indicate a specific time, date, and place. For illustrative purposes, I would propose the following examples. The first vision occurred in the spring of 1820. The Aaronic Priesthood was restored on May 15, 1829. The Book of Mormon is a volume of holy scriptures comparable to the Bible. It is a record of God's dealings with ancient inhabitants of the Americas and contains the fullness of the everlasting gospel. The book was written by many ancient prophets by the spirit of prophecy and revelation. Their words, written on gold plates, were quoted and abridged by a prophet historian named Mormon. The record gives an account of two great civilizations. One came from Jerusalem in 600 BC and afterwards separated into two nations known as the Nephites and the Lamanites. The other came much earlier when the Lord confounded the tongues at the Tower of Babel. This group is known as the Jaredites. After thousands of years all were destroyed except the Lamanites and they are among the ancestors of the American Indians. It has been my observation that as it relates to the events of the Restoration and the historically based truth claims we have built the church on have been problematic for the church. In general, religious-based truth claims that intersect with science or historicity, etc., have been problematic. For example, I can't help but think of Galileo being put on house arrest in 1633 for having the audacity to suggest that, based on his observation, the sun was indeed not revolving around the earth, but vice versa. The Roman Inquisition tried Galileo and found him vehemently suspect of heresy. He remained on house arrest until his death in 1642. It's no wonder he's widely credited as having said, The Bible teaches you how to go to heaven, but not how the heavens go. The historical, factual, literal truth claims that we have made are, in my view, untenable. And just as Roman Catholicism eventually conceded that the earth does in fact revolve around the sun, Mormons have and are beginning to concede that we've been wrong about a number of things. In fact, we're wrong about a lot of things. As mentioned above, some people have begun to adopt a metaphorical spin to otherwise historical events. As it relates to my D-Day example, perhaps they would say something like the following. Well, what was D-Day all about, really? Wasn't it about liberation from Nazi oppression in Europe? So, couldn't we technically be saying that D-Day was a series of events all over Europe at different times that represented the Allied liberation across the continent? For someone who's a realist like myself, that spin can be difficult to make. D-Day is generally understood ostensibly represents a specific date, time, place, and events. 
In Mormonism, we have made nearly countless D-Day-esque historical claims and tied them to religious and or philosophical truth claims. For those who encounter discrepancies that call into question the legitimacy of the historicity of the truth claims, they have little or no recourse to salvage the religious or philosophical truth claims or the inherent value associated with those claims. For me, and increasing numbers of others, the historical, literal interpretation of our truth claims is counterproductive at this point. Those who desire to remain engaged have to continually nuance their own personal beliefs, whilst continuing to interface with an institution that holds orthodox, dogmatic, literal, historical beliefs. If we are going to live and die by the veracity of our historical truth claims, I'm afraid that it looks rather grim from my point of view. As an illustration, here are some of the main points of historical discrepancies that have caused cognitive dissonance for me, and perhaps to other believing members of our faith. Polygamy. Joseph Smith lied about it in public, asked others to lie for him, and lied about it to Emma. Fanny Alger, Joseph Smith's first polygamous wife, married Joseph in 1833, although the sealing power was not restored until 1836. Emma reacted as though Joseph's relationship with Fanny was an affair, and Oliver Cowdery called it an affair. Polyandry was a part of the practice of polygamy, and it included the marriage of sister and mother-daughter combinations, sometimes without the other party knowing about it. The marriage of teenage brides was common with polygamy, and they were married to much older men which was, by all accounts, uncommon, even in that time. There are several accounts of coercion and manipulation being used in marriage proposals to new polygamous wives, as well as to Emma. For example, the flaming sword, promises of exaltation and or threats of destruction, if they didn't comply. Polygamy is Mormonism's black eye. And we all cringe when it gets brought up. It's time for us to disavow polygamy and admit that it was a mistake. The translation of ancient records, beginning with the Book of Abraham. The facsimiles and text alike, as presented in our scriptures, are not translations from the papyrus that was in Joseph's possession. Those figures have been interpreted by Egyptologists as a common funerary text called the Book of Breathings, which does not mention Abraham or anything else that was represented in the Book of Abraham. Joseph clearly thought he was translating an ancient record based on his statements as well as evidence from documents showing his translations. The most common apologetic response was that the papyrus simply served as a catalyst for Joseph receiving revelation. But that begs the question why the papyrus was necessary and why it was necessary for Joseph to believe that he was translating an ancient record. The Book of Mormon. There is no, or very little, DNA evidence that supports the size, scope, and magnitude of the civilization described in the Book of Mormon. There is no, or very little, 
archaeological evidence that exists to support the size, scope, and magnitude of the civilization described in the Book of Mormon. In response to DNA evidence, the Church changed the introduction of the Book of Mormon to read that the Lamanites are among the ancestors of Native Americans, whereas it previously read that the Lamanites are the principal ancestors of the Native Americans. It's my observation that the once common reference to South Americans and Pacific Islanders as Lamanites is beginning to disappear. Large parts of the Book of Mormon come directly from the Bible. Some parts of the quoted Isaiah chapters appear in the timeline of the Book of Mormon prior to when Bible scholars believe the book had been originally written or compiled. There are errors unique to the 1769 King James Version edition of the Bible that are found in the Book of Mormon text. If the Book of Mormon was a translation of portions of the Bible that were contained on the brass plates, why would translation errors unique to that version of the modern-day Bible appear in the text of the Book of Mormon? There are several potential contemporary sources that Joseph Smith could have drawn upon to write the Book of Mormon. The Bible, View of the Hebrews, the First Book of Napoleon, etc. There are geographical names in the Book of Mormon similar to those in the story of Captain Kidd, as well as places near his home. There is good evidence that Joseph Smith held a Trinitarian view of the Godhead expressed in the Book of Mormon, see Mosiah 16, 15, and Alma 11, 38 through 39, for example. This view appears to have evolved into a separate personage view of the Godhead over time. All of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon were related to Joseph Smith or his close friends. By any account, they could hardly be qualified as unbiased or impartial. The testimony of the witnesses was authored by Joseph Smith himself, and subsequent comments from several of the witnesses seem to indicate that they beheld the plates with their spiritual eyes. Joseph Smith used a seer stone, or a peep stone, that was placed into a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, and he did not use the golden plates or Urim and Thummim at all, or very little. Again, this begs the question of why the plates and the Urim and Thummim were necessary, and why Nephite prophets spent literally hundreds of years trying to protect and preserve them. The Temple Ceremony There are obvious connections to Freemasonry in form and substance in the Temple. The blood oaths and penalties that were previously a part of the Temple Ceremony are disturbing. Temple ordinance is viewed by many members as being draconian, repetitive, boring, uninspiring, and overly lengthy. There are varying first vision accounts, which highly indicates an evolving story, as well as an evolving theology on Joseph Smith's part. There's a lack of support for the priesthood restoration ever occurring. There are no accounts of the event being mentioned prior to 1835, and it was omitted from the 1833 Book of Commandments. The Kirtland Safety Society failure caused a mass apostasy, and the details of the bank's failure are incriminating.
Brigham Young and the Speaking as a Man, Not as a Prophet conundrum. Brigham Young taught various false doctrines, including Adam-God theory and blood atonement. How are we ever to determine whether prophets, past or present, are speaking for God or speaking for themselves? There has been a demonstrable effort to whitewash church history and to counsel teachers in the church to not tell the truth if it isn't faith-promoting. For example, the story of Joseph Smith's death has often been portrayed as a martyrdom that occurred because of his religious beliefs. Actually, it was a gunfight in response to the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor's printing press at his order, and potentially even a group of Freemasons upset with Joseph Smith for revealing their tokens and signs as part of the temple ceremony. Correlation efforts, consciously or not, created a cohesive logical narrative that has ended up being not nearly as cohesive or logical as was originally or previously thought. Now, when someone who was raised as an Orthodox believing Mormon, such as myself, is faced with these discrepant details, what's the expected reaction? I considered myself to be well-versed in Mormon doctrine and Mormon history, but lots of these details were surprises to me. The Church had presented a clean, cohesive narrative, and that narrative, unfortunately, is not altogether true. I think, perhaps, the best path forward is to present Joseph Smith as an inspired synthesizer of religious texts and concepts, and let that definition be sufficient and synonymous with prophet. I don't subscribe to the theory that there was any grand conspiracy to hide or obscure the truth of events as they took place, but rather I think that our history has suffered from well-intentioned tidying up from scholars, historians, prophets, etc., as they tried their best to piece together a narrative that was cohesive and adequately conveyed a convincing story. There may be specific examples that counter that point, but I feel that, by and large, that's the more probable cause. As I reflect on my Mormon experience, I'm not so sure that it matters whether or not any given event happened a certain way or, or didn't. The introspection and self-reflection that accompanied my worship was far more valuable than any tangible evidence I'd ever received that it was in fact true. I think we wrongly misattribute the innate good associated with Mormonism to our unique truth claims. As I've come to believe, that's a slippery slope and one that, if taken to its logical conclusion, is going to result in less people benefiting from membership in the Church, perhaps even including myself and my family. In my online exploration of this murky post-enlightenment Mormonism, I've come to develop a heuristic that appears to be helpful in determining the level of success one might have when attempting to reconcile our difficult historical past and remain engaged with the church. One has to ask him or herself two questions. One, is there such a thing as truth? Two, if there is, does it matter? If one answers no to one or both of those questions, 
the likelihood that they will be able to nuance their beliefs to remain engaged in the church as it currently exists increases substantially. As far as it can be said that this heuristic has predictive value at all, I think that it demonstrates our over-reliance on our historical truth claims and their interconnectedness to the associated philosophical and or religious values. As I've shared this thought with others, I've received the following criticism. To distill religion down to truth claims is nonsensical. Religion should fill the void of meaning and values, not truth. As I've thought about this, I've really come to believe that this is a non-sequitur as it relates to Mormonism. As I explained above, is it possible for Mormonism to separate its truth claims from the historical veracity of our restoration? As I've ventured further down this rabbit hole, I've come to research two seemingly opposing conceptualizations of the truth. These are realism and pragmatism. I listened to a podcast in January 2017 between Sam Harris and Jordan B. Peterson. Both of these men couldn't be more different, and their differences became apparent almost immediately in their recorded conversation. In this conversation, Jordan Peterson is the essential pragmatist. The core tenet of pragmatism is that, to the extent that something should or could be considered true, is dependent upon the success of its practical application. Jordan Peterson briefly made a comment around framing truth in a Darwinist context, or to say that if something doesn't ultimately contribute to the survival of our species, then it isn't sufficiently true. That seemed to stop the realist Sam Harris in his tracks. He launched into a thought experiment to try and counter Jordan's point. He says, quote, It just seems to me undeniable that there are facts, whether or not any of us, any existing population of human beings, are aware of those facts. So, before there was any understanding of the energy trapped in an atom, the energy was still trapped in the atom, and the Trinity test proved that beyond any possibility of doubt. So, prior to the bomb going off at Alamogordo, you had some of the world's best physicists not entirely sure what was going to happen. There was kind of a probability distribution among the smartest people over the range of possible outcomes there. So, this was a linguistically mediated conception of what was true at the level of the very, very small physical reality, and we got more information once we saw that bright light and mushroom cloud, and now the conversation continues. But it seems to me that a realistic conception of what's going on there, and really the only sane one if you look long enough at it, is that our language didn't put the energy in the atom. It's not because we spoke a certain way about it that determined the character of physical reality. No. Physical reality has a character whether or not there are apes around to talk about it. Jordan Peterson responds, quote, My one objection to that is the, well, is it true enough objection? So, in order to establish an objective fact, we have to parameterize the search. We have to narrow the search. We have to exclude many, many things. And I think sometimes when we do that, we end up generating a truth. And I would say it's a pragmatic truth that works within the confines of the parameters that have been established around the experiment. 
But then, when launched off into the broader world, much of which was excluded from the theorizing, the results can be catastrophic. End quote. This leads to an in-depth analysis by both men, presenting both of their arguments for and against a pragmatic worldview. They jump from example to example to example, from the atomic bomb to the feasibility of synthesizing smallpox to knowing the number of hairs on your body. They couldn't come to a point where they could find common ground. Eventually, Jordan Peterson tries to move on. Peterson. We could recognize for the moment that we're starting with different claims of truth. Harris. But I don't think we are. I think you're simply deciding at the end of the day to say that any truths that lead us down a path where we suffer unnecessarily or died weren't true. Peterson. Right. You have to choose what you mean by true. You have to. And I'm not accepting the same definition of truth that you operate under. And it's partly because I believe that Darwin trumps realism. I believe that pragmatism trumps realism. Harris. But even the truth of Darwinism is not anchored to a Darwinian conception in your view of truth, as it's anchored to a realistic one. So Darwinism will not prove to be false if knowing about Darwinism gets us all killed. That's entailed in your claim. Darwinism would bite its own tail and disappear." End quote. Eventually, after an hour and 40 minutes or so, the two decide to call it quits and ask for listeners to perform a post-mortem on their discussion to identify where the conversation went off the rails. As a parting comment, Sam Harris snuck in one last statement. Quote, I am reasonably confident that your use of truth here will prove unpragmatic, even by your own standards. End quote. I've listened to this conversation multiple times, and I found it to be nothing less than fascinating, especially as it applies to Mormonism and my personal experience within Mormonism. As it relates to Mormonism, I picture the church as an institution that adopts a realist conceptualization of truth. We espouse literal interpretation of scripture. We talk about dates and specific events. We have a clear list of true doctrine and false doctrine. We focus less on the lived experience and more on the instruction books. As I've pondered, I think that the application of pragmatism or focusing on the successful application of values, principles, etc. within Mormonism is problematic for individuals and close to impossible on a large scale for the following reasons. 1. The church itself is not a pragmatic institution. 2. Nuancing your beliefs while interfacing with an orthodox, realist institution may feel disingenuous and unauthentic for some. 3. The underlying assumption that Mormonism, or even religion in general, is the only and or best way that exists to teach one another about morality and values is indeed an assumption, and may not actually be true. 4. Pragmatism within Mormonism is circular and may obfuscate facts and reality in such a way 
that ends up being highly unpragmatic. Additionally, since pragmatism is highly dependent on a subjective point of view, it's quite possible that pragmatism may ultimately dictate a realist conceptualization of the truth and vice versa. Verifiable facts are historical in nature, mathematically precise, and measurable. Mormonism is replete with those kinds of truth claims, and most of its philosophical and or religious truth claims are coupled with those kinds of truth claims. Such a strong connection between philosophical truth and historical truth causes severe dissonance when the historical truth claims are refuted. D-Day was June 6, 1944. 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can nuance the answers to those questions, but you do so at the peril of making it difficult to have an intelligent conversation with anyone else about reality or facts. At what point does pragmatism ultimately prove unpragmatic because it has obfuscated the concepts of fact or reality? No matter how useful or insightful or inspiring it may seem, are we not doing ourselves a disservice to obfuscate historically or mathematically precise statements such as D-Day was June 6, 1944, or 2 plus 2 equals 4? How can we claim that we, as Mormons, are doing anything different when we try to redefine what it means to translate an ancient text or receive revelation, or take alternative views on what were originally pronounced as literal historical events. I firmly believe that pragmatism is the best and really the only path forward for the church, but it's paradoxical and counterproductive to continue to have to interact with an institution that embraces a top-down, orthodox, literal, historical narrative and places the burden on individuals within the institution to nuance or adopt a pragmatic viewpoint of those events. Additionally, the claim that religion addresses a void in nature wherein issues of morality are exclusively dealt with seems to me to be simply because you say so. There's no evidence that our morality emanates from any external source, but rather is innate and has evolved with the rest of our psychology. Admittedly, religion is a force for good and has been an extremely effective system that we've used to disseminate ideas regarding morality and values. However, the philosophical moral truths in Mormonism and religion in general come saddled with the acceptance of supernatural beliefs. The philosophical moral truths in Mormonism and religion in general come saddled with bigotry, racism, misogyny, and a whole myriad of other nonsense. Who's to say that religion is the best possible system we can use to discuss morality and values? Pragmatism in practice, in Mormonism, seems to employ a because-I-say-so and because-I-want-to rationale for continued engagement. Once confronted with the historical discrepancies with our truth claims, it seems that this is the only reason that exists to choose to remain engaged in Mormonism. You may be able to choose to have faith, 
But it seems to me that choosing to believe in something for any reason other than being logically compelled to believe it is nonsensical and is the very definition of delusion. I understand that the term delusion has negative connotations and could be seen as an attack or condescending. However, I'm simply using that specific word because I find it to be the most accurate and stark description of what I'm observing. If I were to define delusion as a belief in a concept or idea, despite the fact that no evidence or even contradictory evidence exists to support that belief, how are we to differentiate between delusion and faith? Where does faith end and delusion begin? Lastly, on this subject, there appears to be a trend, at least within the Western United States, of having several famous Mormon intellectuals who are familiar with the messy details of the Restoration, yet remain faithfully involved, hold speaking engagements or private firesides for individuals who have intellectual concerns with the Church. Excommunicated Mormon activist John DeLynn interviewed a couple recently who had the opportunity to sit down with one of these faithful intellectuals named Spencer Fluman in the hopes that he could proffer some wisdom or advice with how to deal with a faith crisis. Ultimately, this couple was unconvinced and have subsequently become disillusioned, from what I can tell. If we're relying on Spencer Fluman or Patrick Mason or Terrell and Fiona Gibbons or Richard Bushman or Greg Prince or the handful of other Mormon authors who travel around giving speeches to convince people that, despite the messiness, the church is worth being a part of, then I believe the church is doomed, in my opinion. In belaboring this point with the couple on his podcast, John DeLynn states, quote, When I was growing up, I was taught that the LDS gospel was plain, and it was precious. Plain meaning God speaks to man through prophets. God gives us scripture, and we read the scriptures, and we know what to do. Precious because it's true, and if we follow it, It'll lead to happiness and joy. And for me, when I hear neo-apologists making everything messy and everything complicated, and the brethren are flawed, and the scriptures are flawed, and it's all messy, and it's revelation but it's flawed, and we're all just fumbling along side by side doing our best, at some point, the gospel is no longer plain. It's extremely complex. And it's no longer precious because you can never know what you can rely upon and what you cannot. And I think that's the trade-off. Yes, we're going to have Bushman and Gibbons and Mason and Fluman and Witherspoon and others showing us this beautiful sort of utopian idea of all of us being shoulder to shoulder, side by side, struggling together to figure out what is inspiration and what isn't. But what I just think is fair for us to acknowledge is that this is not a plain and precious gospel. This is a confusing and messy gospel. End quote. It is my opinion that rather than further entrench ourselves in our truth claims and get red in the face and insist that they are factual, actual historical events, we should shift the focus to the benefit of the lived experience. Yeah, we might have to mourn, individually and collectively, the loss of some of our treasured, restored truths. It's going to hurt. 
some people won't be able to do it. But I fear that if we don't, then the end result will be an ever-shrinking Mormonism that cannot improve upon itself, that further makes itself irrelevant and significantly reduces its capacity for good in this world. It seems to me as though an honest assessment of our truth claims has led to thousands of books, thousands of podcasts, and has caused me personally years upon years of reflection and thought, several sleepless nights, grief, pain, sorrow, and confusion. If an honest assessment of our truth claims has to entail an in-depth understanding of genetics, Egyptology, philosophy, 19th century history and literature, ancient Mesoamerican history, theology, psychology, and a whole myriad of other historical and scientific disciplines, when will we concede that our truth claims are not straightforward and, frankly, stop clinging to them as truth claims? Our current course, the current narrative of the truth, as it's stated in the church, is untenable and unsustainable. Part 3. The Administration of the Modern Day Church In addition to the concerns I've outlined regarding church history, I have similar concerns regarding the administration of the modern-day church. To get straight to the point, most of it has to do with the burden of proof on the modern-day church to behave as the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, and led by Jesus Christ himself. As well as having 15 men who call themselves special witnesses of Christ, and are sustained as prophets, seers, and revelators. I did not participate in general conference proceedings this past weekend, but I still wish to make it known that I want to record an opposing vote, with all the love that I possess, for sustaining the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency as prophets, seers, and revelators. I do so because I believe that that position is untenable, as I have no recollection of any prophecies or revelations received by these brethren that is evidence of such a calling. I have not witnessed any evidence that these men have any greater spiritual connection to God than me or anyone else. I love them, and I sustain them as kind, wise, wonderful men. My vote to choose to not sustain them is in part an extension of mercy towards them, as they must feel an incredible burden on their shoulders. I have heard it whispered throughout the church that these men must have seen Jesus and been with him. I have heard some apostles make hints or inferences, but stop short of confirming such. I actually suspect that none of them really have, and perhaps are racked with some measure of guilt as to why they have been called as special witnesses of Christ, but have never seen him. Although I can't seem to find the clip any longer, I believe that I recently heard M. Russell Ballard refer to himself as a concerned grandpa. I support and sustain Elder Ballard and the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency as my concerned grandparents and I relieve them of the responsibility of being anything other than that. As such, I take their counsel and advice with a grain of salt, 
realizing that they are speaking from their perspective that and that times are different now than they were when they were my age but I listen with great anticipation I listen to them as wise kind loving inspired individuals who are examples of righteous living however I relieve them of the responsibility of being God's mouthpiece on the earth there are various examples of where despite their best intentions and despite the fact that these are wise wonderful kind inspired men they were all collectively very wrong our church was institutionally racist until 1978 it wasn't just that black men couldn't receive the priesthood until 1978 neither black men nor black women were allowed to go to the temple they were effectively denied the blessings of exaltation for no reason other than their skin color the church fought the equal rights movement for women the church has fought the gay rights movement we've consistently been 30 years behind social norms for the better part of 100 years and we always eventually cave in anyways mormon activist lindsey hansen park once said be tough on institutions but go easy on people I can speak candidly regarding my critique of the institution of Mormonism because I love all that it stands for and I love the people that comprise of the church the church itself is not a person that has a name a birthday feelings a family or anything else people do however that's where our focus should be I think it's time we recognize that there's something about our institution that is causing us to hurt other people both outside and within the institution we shouldn't hesitate to swiftly enact changes to the institution in order to benefit people instead for some reason we consistently place the reputation and well-being of a faceless nameless feelingless institution above the well-being of actual people we need to stop now to return to my personal narrative for a bit my dad is gay I've had a very personal journey with trying to love the sinner but hate the sin as a devout Mormon I struggled for years with trying to extend Christ-like love to my father while simultaneously taking precautions to not insinuate acceptance of his behavior and not to incriminate myself I worried that I wasn't being merciful enough and then I would let my father into my life a little bit more I would worry I was being complicit or condoning I scoured the words of the prophets and apostles and the scriptures to find some guidance on how to best walk this tightrope and I found the following quote from an interview with Dallin H. Oaks prophet seer and revelator question at what point does showing that love cross the line into inadvertently endorsing behavior if the son says well if you love me can I bring my partner to our home to visit can we come for holidays how do you balance that against for example concern for other children in the home elder Oaks 
That's a decision that needs to be made individually by the person responsible, calling upon the Lord for inspiration. I can imagine that in most circumstances the parents would say, please don't do that. Don't put us into that position. Surely, if there are children in the home who would be influenced by this example, the answer would likely be that. There would also be other factors that would make that the likely answer. I can also imagine some circumstances in which it might be possible to say, yes, come, but don't expect to stay overnight. Don't expect to be a lengthy house guest. Don't expect us to take you out and introduce you to our friends, or to deal with you in a public situation that would imply our approval of your partnership. End quote. I am sad to say that I took Elder Oaks's advice, and I tried to dance around my father, letting him in a little, but not too much. This was harmful for my relationship with my father, whose only desire was to be close to his son and be a part of his life. That was the only agenda he was trying to push. It wasn't until I had a child of my own and held him in my arms and felt that intense, all-consuming love of a father for his child that I understood what I had done to my father. And I felt absolutely and utterly terrible, sad and empty. As I held my son, I asked myself, what if he's gay? The answer was clear to me. I don't care. I don't want this precious, beautiful child one inch out of my life. Brethren, it's clear that the right answer here is love, and there need not be any qualifiers. I want to unequivocally state that such a struggle to find some pretended balance between justice and mercy is unnecessary, harmful, and ridiculous. And now I refer to such deliberations as pointless conundrums. There is no satisfying mercy and justice here. There should only be love, acceptance, and kindness. Elder Oaks, I love you, and I've listened to many, many of your talks throughout the years. I believe you've inspired me to become a better person in a lot of ways, and I hope that I have. But I believe you're wrong on this one. To all of the Quorum of the Twelve in the First Presidency, I believe you're wrong on this. We just need to love gay people. Yeah, I realize it's problematic for the plan of salvation, but it's worth the short-term pain to make the changes now than it's going to be when we're forced to in 30 years. And in the meantime, who knows how many hosts of people's lives will be spared grief and pain and quite literally be saved. I received an invitation from the Church Correlation Department last year to complete an online survey. After completing this survey, I was contacted by a consulting firm hired on behalf of the church to participate in a focus group. As the date for my appointment grew closer, 
I was again approached and asked if I would be willing to participate in a one-on-one -on -one interview rather than a group discussion. I agreed. I met with a young man named Tyler in an office building in Dallas, Texas. We discussed most everything I've laid out here. I expressed my doubts and concerns, but I also expressed to him my gratitude for the church and how much better my life is because of my involvement in the church. I told him how proud I was, as an inactive member, to still be allowed the opportunity a short while ago to put on a yellow shirt and go help my brothers and sisters who suffered as a consequence of Hurricane Harvey in South Texas. I was amazed by what I saw. Thousands of yellow-shirted Mormons pulled into Beaumont, Texas and ripped out people's carpet, moved their furniture, and pulled out their soaked drywall. They literally answered people's prayers. The Red Cross drove around handing out sandwiches. But it was the Mormons who were the boots on the ground, getting things done, and helping other people. Helping people. I have never been prouder to be a Mormon. And if that doesn't capture what it means to be a Mormon, I don't know what does. Being a Mormon is so much more than believing in literal truth claims. It's being the best force for good in this world that we can. It's changing the world. As I conveyed this sentiment to Tyler, he asked, Okay, finish this sentence for me. I want to be a Mormon, but... I then said, I want to be a Mormon, but I don't think they'll let me because I'm unable to maintain a literal belief in most, if not all, of the church's truth claims. I'm writing this letter because I want to try and stay true to that desire, but I'm just not sure how to proceed. Sure, I can show up to church and sit in the back and not say anything, and perhaps my bishop and others may ascribe my lack of faith as being due to a lack of diligence in my spiritual preparation, or because I'm secretly cheating on my wife, or addicted to porn, or any one of a hundred excuses given for why people lose faith. But in fact, it was because I was too far in. I took it too literally. I learned too much. I'm probably more well-read than the vast majority of church membership on Mormon subjects and doctrine. The more you know mantra doesn't translate very well to continued involvement within Mormonism. But nevertheless, I feel drawn to it. I love it. I want it in my life, in my children's lives, in my family. The good parts of it, anyway. There is a hole in my soul where Mormonism once was, and perhaps it can be there again. I just believe, now, that it's going to have to be in spite of its truth claims and not because of them. I recently heard a story about a bishop in the early church named Edwin Woolley. After a heated debate with Brigham Young, Brigham remarked, Now, Bishop Woolley, I guess you will go off and apostatize. Woolley responded, If this were your church, President Young, I would be tempted to do so. But this is just as much my church as it is yours. And why should I apostatize for my own church? That's how I feel about Mormonism. It wasn't something I was participating in. It wasn't a country club. 
It was something I was living and building and being. It was and is a part of me. Emily Esfahani Smith wrote a book entitled The Power of Meaning. The book illustrates that people who live a meaningful life have elements or themes in common. They are 1. Belonging 2. Purpose 3. Storytelling and 4. Transcendence Is it any wonder that Mormons live such meaning-filled lives? Even using completely secular metrics, Mormons check all the boxes for a life replete with meaning. Mormonism is my heritage. It is my faith tradition. It has been, and I hope it continues to be, a major part of my identity. I will proceed with attempting to navigate a return to some semblance of activity in the church, although I confess I'm unsure if it's going to be successful. I've often referenced a clever phrase that I feel adequately describes my unique transformation. It goes like this. Once you've become a pickle, you can't go back to being a cucumber. For all intents and purposes, my faith has been pickled. It's changed. It's transformed. In my experience, suggesting or attempting the textbook answers of increased fasting, study, and prayer, etc., will, and indeed have, exaggerated my frustration. So, here I am. I'm just a few years removed from full activity in the church. The more time that passes between me and my departure from the church, the less likely my return to it becomes. I will eventually, like many others have before me, find a replacement for the belonging, purpose, storytelling, transcendence, community, friendships, and identity that once accompanied my membership in the church. Mormonism, I need you to know you are losing me and untold many more like me. And while we all mourn the loss of Mormonism in our lives, the loss, my dear Mormonism, is ultimately yours. All the best. So there you go. Thank you very much, Christian, for your essay. Now, if you as our listener want to go and vote for this essay, go to our website, find this episode, click on the voting link, and leave your feedback. And if you haven't already joined us on Patreon, please consider signing up and supporting Infants on Thrones for as little as $1 per episode, capped at whatever budget you want to give yourself for the month. Your generosity helps keep this podcast alive and growing. So thank you. This wraps up May 2018's Listener Essay Contest. You can vote through the end of May. Pretty bird, pretty bird. Hey, this is Billy and 4C from Rhode Island. Yes, that's right. The blind kid from Dumb and Dumber, and now Dumb and Dumber 2, too. Yes, a pseudo-celebrity Mormon. Infants on Thrones has helped me come to grips with the tragedy that I've seen. Well, heard about at least, when learning that the thing that mattered most to me ended up being dead all along. I mean, Petey didn't even have a head. 
If you heart the show as much as I do, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Write a short review, and oh my heck, why not post about it on the social media? Unless you're still stuck in the Relief Society closet about your faith transition stuff like I am. And always remember, I just thought he was real quiet. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to Big Tense and Friends.